0: are considered more important than people. The giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. George Bush doesn't care about black people.
1: History Month, but we don't have a White History Month. Well, all we've ever been taught is white history. If it was not for the love and respect shown to me by black women, those right wing, ultra conservative, alt-right haters, they would have me believe I'm too black, I'm too confrontational, I'm too tough and I'm too disrespectful of them. But now I know I'm simply a strong black woman. We're in a time where corporations are treated like people and people are treated like things. They promote legislation that attacks voting rights, the poor, LGBT citizens, the immigrant community, and civil rights that are lewd, mean spirited, and fundamentally contrary to what our democracy is supposed to be about. is not what they are doing. What would be bad is for us not to fight
0: back. This is 102.3 WHIVLPFM in New Orleans. You are listening to Resistance Radio. My name is Mark Allendary. With me, as always, is very close friend, the yawning, and apparently very tired. I look over, and uh, <laughs> usually Kenny is looking at me, waiting for the insults. And there, his mouth was just open wide, and a big yawn was coming out. He's wearing a red shirt with a goofy-looking tie that nice I time, can't man. even oh, describe. What talking about? Uh, without question, uh, with us uh, today, Kenny Francis, thank you so much. But really the the brilliant political mind is sitting right next to you uh, yes, and yes. we will get to him in just a second kenny francis uh, indivisible uh, new orleans one of the founding members and all, as always a pleasure to have you here with us on resistance radio
2: excited to be back in the studio we've been out of studio for a couple of weeks um, because we did a pre-recorded episode a couple of weeks ago and then last week we we're at the ace hotel which by the way for those of you that are waiting for that we haven't been yes. able to post that episode yet because yeah. it's a little bit different process recording it when we do it live at the Ace. And so just a little bit more technical things to figure out, mostly just Mark Allen doing his part of the shop. Um, but anyway, we're going to get the episode posted soon for those of you that did not get a chance to hear and it live or come I down to cookies. the Ace. Um, and because it was a great episode and JP Morrell was a fantastic host and the unanimous juries coalition were fantastic partners. And thanks to Ace Hotel for letting us use the space again. Um, and for the, if you want, um, I want to put like sort of like a special thing for that episode because in that episode, JP Morrell does a very, very good job of explaining all six constitutional amendments that are on the ballot this November, which I'm sure you are all registered to vote for and that you will be going to vote for, um,
0: early voting tomorrow,
2: early voting starts tomorrow and it goes through, um, October 30th and election day is the 6th So listen to that episode, understanding amendments, think about it and vote. Um, Before we get to our guests for today, um, I'd like to do two things one I'd like to insult Mark Allen really quickly and second I would like to do our activism update Um, learning from past episodes It's important for me to do the updates before we get with the guests because we always run out of time at the end If I don't do them first, Um, so first insult Um, Mark I just need to point out that Mark Allen's shirt that he's wearing today looks like he got it from a former Johnny Cash impersonators estate sale
0: Dude, that's an that's a that's a compliment. That is not yeah, what I would consider to be. You just said Johnny Cash and Mark like, Allen it's like, in one. It's in like one it's sentence. like the Johnny
2: Cash outfit, but like the Target collection.
0: <laughs> There's the insult right there. <laughs> it's actually a Scully shirt. This is actually what Johnny Cash would have worn. Okay, I'll just have you know. But I do appreciate Johnny Cash and Mark Allen in the same sentence. He was the man in black, and that is where I get black from. So there you go. <laughs> Kenny's laughing at his own joke. He's second, very proud of that was, himself. That was funny.
2: That was funny. So was our guest. So, um, the second thing is I want to do the activism updates because there's a bunch of them. Um, so, I want to get folks the information very clearly. So, the first thing that is on tap for this week is tomorrow, which will be Tuesday, October 23rd. This is starting at 3.30 p.m. at Congo Square. There's going to be a second line to the polls. So for those of you who are wondering about early voting, tomorrow's the first day of early voting, and there will be a second line going from Congo Square to City Hall um, where folks are going to be early voting. And so listen to the episode from last week and then go vote tomorrow another thing that's happening this week is this Wednesday October 24th at 6 30 p.m at the Delgado College Sydney Collier building number three room 204 that's at 3727 Louisa Street there is going to be a meeting about the fair and just relocation for the Gordons for the residents of Gordon Plaza um, being organized by the People's Assembly if you don't know what Gordon Plaza is? We've done a bunch of episodes on it, and we're going to continue to co- cover the story. But the very, very, very short version of it is: there is there are currently fifty four residents um in New Orleans living in a community called Gordon Plaza, that are living on a toxic waste dump. The city, state, and federal government knows this; have known this for years. And it is long past time that these people have been given be given fair compensa- compensation to relocate to an area that isn't a toxic waste dump, which Seems like a simple thing, but here we are almost 30 years since the original um, Since it was originally found out that this was a topic waste waste on that they were living on and not not much has been done since Just to, um,
0: just to kind of tie into what we were talking about a moment ago about just examples of structural racism that exists in our society I, I can't think of another one that fits that description Especially when you combine it with uh, structural racism as well as environmental uh, racism as well
2: Absolutely um, This Thursday at 6 p.m., that's Thursday, October 25th, at the New Orleans JCC, which is 5342 St. Charles Avenue, there's going to be a screening of the film 12 Angry Men put on by the Unanimous Juries Coalition, and there's also going to be a panel of folks that work with the Unanimous Juries Coalition talking about why it's so important that you all vote yes on Amendment 2 on November 6th, and make sure that Louisiana becomes one of the other 48 states that has unanimous juries as a bar for conviction, um, which we don't currently do, which is unfair and ridiculous. And yet another example of systemic racism. And that's where the conversation came from. Um, (laughs) Yes. Also happening on Thursday the 25th at 6 p.m., so you're going to kind of have to choose between these two things, is a rally in March being held by Take Him Down NOLA. Um, They're continuing their fight to, to... call for the removal of all monuments to white supremacy we have quite a lot of those in new orleans and so there's a lot of work to be done still
0: more structural racism
2: yes um and the last thing that's certainly not least that i wanted to um tell folks about is this saturday at 1 p.m that's saturday october 27th so before you go to voodoo come out and be involved in the community who goes goes to voodoo anymore (laughs) it's fair (laughs) um There is going to be at 1 p.m. at Lafayette Square. That's 500 St. Charles Street. There is going to be a rally in support of trans folks. Um, If you haven't watched the news recently to see Trump's most recent abomination, he is essentially trying to roll back any and all protections that have been passed at the federal level for trans folks. Um, And so this is a rally to speak up against that. And that's Saturday, um, October 27th at 1 p.m. at Lafayette Square.
0: And I, actually, one of the topics that we're going to be talking about today. Yes,
2: and then if we, if we have time, we're going to we're planning on getting to to that um, towards the end of our show. With that, I would like to take us into our guest. So with us today, we have Ken Barnes. No relation. We just share the same first name. Um, he actually spells it differently than I do. Um, but Ken is the Louis, the Louisiana Special Counsel for the Supreme Court in Louisiana.
0: Does that make sense?
2: Yes, he's the Special Counsel for the Louisiana Supreme Court. Um, so
0: he's the attorney for the judges?
2: Kind of. And I'm going to let him explain what that job okay. is. Um, funny enough, I met Ken and his wife randomly in the airport. Um, we were both coming back from Cuba, um, this earlier this summer and we just sort of started talking and then he was telling me about his job and all this stuff. I was like, you should come on my show. Um, and here we and are. And here it is. Yeah, here <laughs> Amazing. So with that, welcome Ken. Thanks for joining us.
1: Well, thank you Ken and doc. Uh, Thank you doc. Uh, as Mr. Francis said, my name is Ken Barnes. I am from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, but I've been here in New Orleans for the last two years with my wife. And since coming to New Orleans, I have served as the bond advocate for the Orleans Public Defender's Office, and I am now the special counsel to Louisiana Supreme Court. Prior to coming over uh, to New Orleans, I graduated from LSU Law in 2015. Went on to work for employment discrimination civil rights uh, firm, then became the campaign manager for the mayor of Baton Rouge. In my current duties as a special counsel to Louisiana Supreme Court, uh, I really take a focus to the criminal matters and also to the matters dealing with pretrial services inside of Orleans Parish and the rest of Louisiana. So some of my duties as special counsel are that I uh, oversee and assist with the uh, with the pre-trial service program at Orleans Criminal District Court. I am a liaison between the Louisiana State Law Institute Uh, And the Louisiana Supreme Court I attend the meetings for Louisiana Public Defender Board and additionally I am on the uh, Justice Reinvestment Oversight Committee uh, Put on by the uh, governor of Louisiana Uh, So in all that I really take a real big focus towards criminal law uh, and other matters dealing with that So uh, that's my introduction. Thank you Um, And
2: so like I think what's really cool about what we're gonna be able to do here Mm is sort of what we've been doing for the last couple months on resistance radio is talking about our statewide and also local justice system, and how it leads to anything but justice, and how it's a system where, from the moment a cop approaches you to your jury trial, it is anything but fair or just. And it is specifically leaned against people of color and at literally every step of the way. And I was actually saying this to Ken off air is that, you know, with everything that I've learned about this the justice, the criminal justice system myself this year. It feels kind of a miracle as a black person when you go through the whole process and you actually do get acquitted it, because it just every single step of the way, there's just barrier after barrier after barrier for you to get a quote-unquote fair trial right. or a fair process. And while most of these processes may be operating quote-unquote like legally the way that they're quote-unquote supposed to, but the way that they're designed in the first place, were so skewed against people that you never really had a chance whether whether, whether or not you got to the letter of what the law was written. Um, and sort of what we were talking about off air is that whether or not somewhere some judge or DA or legislator wrote a law specifically to screw black people over, the, that is the effect of the law and the effect of the rules when you write them in a way that is inherently ignorant of what has systemically happened and something one of those things we're going to talk about is when you are talking about like bond hearings and being able to prove that you have co- like ties to the community and the and how it takes complete ignorance of the fact of like what does ties to community mean in the eyes of the law and is it possible for like large amounts of black people who have done that answer probably being no and we're going to get into that but I think that's something that like as we've done this we did this ep- that episode where Aaron Clark Rizzio um, from the from LCCR about juvenile justice We've done several episodes of unanimous juries And now we're doing this episode with Ken About pretrial hearing and bonds And it's just like at every single step of the system From the point From the moment an officer decides That they want to go approach you about anything To the end You're just kind of screwed
0: Right. I mean, but if, if you're looking at it from the perspective of the, of the legal system or the white yeah, it's structural exactly infrastructure, it right, it's working exactly right. as it was designed. And, and also, you know, you're talking about the laws, the way that they were written and were they written, you know, in an ignorant manner, were they written, I, I you know, look at the unanimous juries, verdict law that was written in the late 1800s, which was, it's doing exactly as it had intended to be done.
2: And and that's a really good point. I guess the point that I was trying to make is, I think it's kind of irrelevant. The 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 and you and I talk about this all the time. I think the intent is kind of irrelevant. It's particularly bad when we find out that laws were written with explicit white supremacist and racist intents. But for me, it's also it doesn't matter if your intent if that wasn't the intent, but that's the effect. I guess that's the point that I was making is that when you have policies and laws that are created. For a system that is inherently inequitable, it, like it doesn't matter what your intent was, and I think that that's where we always like where I often see the conversation about particular laws or particular statutes get stuck on. It's people like, well, I mean, it's not that we wrote this law specifically to disenfranchise, blah blah blah, enter in whatever like is happening, but it's like whether or not the intent was there or not doesn't right. matter. It's right. the impact. It's, the, it's,
0: the, yeah. it's kind of like one of the things if you if you're starting a sentence that says something like that you know yeah, it's, a, exactly. it's kind of like well you know one of my best friends is a you know or you know do you know what I'm saying I mean yeah. it's kind of that same or uh, you know I'm not a racist but you know if you're starting a sentence like something like that and if you're starting a sentence that says something like well we didn't mean for the law to do that well okay well that's fine but the law does do that empirical data suggests or actually shows that that's the way it is and uh, and basically it's just like I was just telling Renard earlier on, on health as a human right you know when people try to talk to me about voting no on a Amendment 2. Here's what I hear. Wah, 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 wah. You know, you're just trying to maintain the white uh, supremacy or white infrastructure that exists. Yeah, I mean, uh, it
2: usually goes something, 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 felons, something, something, something. <laughs> they're all going to get out see, of jail, you, you something, something, thing, something. Right? Crime on the streets, <laughs> something, something, something. I'm scared.
0: Right. It, it, that's exactly right. When, just
2: come and, out and say you're scared of black people and you think right. they should go to jail. Just <laughs> right. come out and say what you're really thinking.
0: And uh, and so, all right. So, so yeah, so let's.
2: Um, So, Ken, what I want to sort of like start with is because like I learned a lot about this, even just like the the brief chat we had before about this is. So let's say I am Joe C. Riley and I'm arrested because I want to start just like like, what happens when you get arrested? And this is going to make sense to you in a minute when we get there, Mark Allen. So when you get arrested, cops bring you in for whatever charge. Let's say. Well, let's use an example we talked about. Let's say I am sitting in my home. And I have a friend who says, "Hey Ken, um, can you bring me my duffel bag, please?" And I go like bring, go to bring them the duffel bag, and I get stopped by the cops, who happen to have been watching my house. And inside the duffel bag is guns and drugs, and I'm now going to jail. What happens next? Well,
1: um, what it depends on is what type of drugs it was and how much of the drugs. First, start off. So, in the example we gave earlier, we were talking about crack cocaine, ecstasy, things that are uh, considered hard drugs. Uh, and, and what it is, is that if you're caught with those uh, drugs, depending on the amount, you may be looking at a simple possession. You may be looking at a possession with intent to distribute, or they may try to hit you for distribution. Uh, definitely uh, all, all three of those, those are going to be felonies. But if you have marijuana and they hit you for intent to distribute or uh, distribution, uh, those are definitely going to be felonies. Uh, if you have more than 14 grams of marijuana and you have an Once to start off, this is not legal advice for anyone. I I am not acting as your lawyer. (laughs) Do not take this in the courtroom. But before we start, uh, (laughs) but if you if you have that and what you'll be looking at is depending on your criminal history, you may be a felon in the possession of a firearm. Uh, But if you have crack cocaine and you have ecstasy and you have a firearm, uh, you're most likely going to be charged with possession of a firearm uh, in the presence of a controlled dangerous substance. Uh, that's a felony, and also you're gonna have the felony for the drugs. And what will happen is that if you're taken into, if the police officer writes a police report or gets a had a warrant to, for your arrest, and then they take you to court, uh, the first thing the judge is gonna do is try to determine proper cause. If there was a warrant for your arrest, probable cause has already been determined, and then only thing that the judge can do is go ahead and uh, set your set your bond at that point.
2: So, I want to pause there for bill. a second. Um, so probable cause. Like, I guess my question is, like, what's the burden for
1: probable cause? Like How, like, how, how strict well, is that?
0: It's a, describe to the doctor over here what probable cause is. What, what is the <laughs> judge actually trying to look for?
1: So what it uh, what is is that uh, in, in criminal law, there's different standards. Uh, probable cause and uh, what you've been speaking about uh, most recently, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. And what that is just saying is that uh, to what level of uh, sureness do you have to have that this crime was committed for this person to move forward? So uh, you have reasonable suspicion, you have probable cause, and then you have beyond reasonable doubt. Probable cause sits within the middle of the two of those. Probable cause, uh, some would say is about a 50 plus one standard. So anything above 50%. So if a person's reading a document that's presented to them, the judge or magistrate or commissioner, in reading the four corners of that document, Do they have enough facts in taking the police officer at their word to find that uh, there's a 50 plus one chance that you did, in fact, do that?
0: So what if you had a a text message that said, well, officer, I mean, judge, here's my text message that asked me to bring this duffel bag over to my friends. Those are not my guns. Those aren't my fingerprints. Those aren't my drugs. Uh, You know, maybe I need to consider who my friends are, but still... I was asked to transfer a duffel bag over, so my probable, do you know what I'm saying? I mean, is that a, and here's the text message asking me to do it.
1: Well, that's a reasonable question. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> and what what will occur normally in a situation like that is that uh, judges normally do not take evidence during, normally do not take evidence in during the bond hearing, or uh, your first appearance. Normally the judge is going to take evidence in at a, Uh, a preliminary examination or at some hearing down the line but at that first bond setting uh, usually it's just going by the four corners of the gist because if there was a police officer that uh, gave this information to a judge beforehand and a warrant was drafted probable cause has already been uh, interpreted and then the judge isn't going to take that outside evidence into uh, consideration but on the flip side the reason for that is because you don't really want uh, people who are accused to be defending their case within hours of being arrested, right? You bring a person in and you're saying, all right, provide, produce evidence for me now and also make statements. So that's one reason why uh, that doesn't happen. But uh, what could happen is if the judge find probable cause and uh, they uh, set bond and the bond is at a level where the person's unable to meet it, or there's some other mitigating, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, extenuating circumstances that preclude the person from being released, that person can be in jail until uh, they're released either by the finality of their case or they postponed or something of that sort. And that's kind of what we're here to, uh, to discuss with the uh, with the use of evidence-based risk assessment tools
0: right so they would be able to just be able to post bail because bails are obviously affordable and cheap and they can just get out of jail that way i mean Depending that's what on who you that, are. that's what i hear all the time right? and
2: and and so something we talked about which i thought was like i actually didn't even know was i thought that like you had this requirement that you had to be arraigned after you got arrested but you actually t- told me outside that like sticking with this met with the the example we've given so you get arrested and for Certain um, charges you have, they have up to 45 days to formally charge you that if you do, either don't get bond set or can't post bond, you can stay in jail that whole time. And for more serious charges like murder, you can like, or excuse me, like um, suspected murder, they can hold you for over 60 days without formally charging you. If you cannot post bond or if they decide to not allow you to postpone
0: And let me take a guess that this probably happens to people of color more. And this and you know,
2: and this is definitely happens fairly across yeah, of course. socioeconomic <laughs> lines as well <laughs> of as
1: course. color lines. Well, what occurs is and uh, Kenny is totally on point with this. Whenever you're arrested for a misdemeanor, uh, you can be held for up to forty five days until the district attorney accepts charges, and up to six days until the district attorney accepts charges. And the important thing about that is that uh, a lot of times you hear about people pleading guilty to get out of jail. Well, if you're arrested and there's no charges to, they haven't accepted, you've just been accused you can't plead guilty to something cuz you have no charge to plead guilty to at that point.
0: Can I interrupt and Can I just ask is that a ploy that is used by the DA's office is to try to keep you in jail for as long as possible for two reasons. One, is there money that can be made on keeping people incarcerated that way? Just, you know, we've seen that when folks are in prison, especially in some of the parish prisons that you get 25, you know, sheriffs can get $25 a day per prisoner. So, one is there a financial incentive one to keep people in, incarcerated uh, even for a short period of time and then two, Will keeping them incarcerated make them more likely? So if they're going to try to keep them in for 60 days, are they more likely to say anything just to get out so they can go back to their family, their lives or whatever, rather than try to plead their case?
1: Well, to start off, one of the reasons why uh, the, the role that I feel in the Supreme Court's interaction in the uh, use of risk assessment tool in Orleans Parish is because sheriffs and municipalities are losing money on having people in jail. Uh, You you cited $25 a day. Well, to house a person in jail pre-trial costs more than that. It costs more money for a person to be housed uh, pre-trial than the incentive they're being being given. So many sheriff's departments across the United States are seeing that they're losing money on this type of practice. So they're wanting to get more out the game of holding people who are not a danger to the community or are low risk for failure to appear or to commit a new criminal uh, act. Uh, So... I don't see the incentive being there. Now, as far as the uh, district attorney's mindset or what motivates them to do different things, uh, I, I really can't speak to it. I come from the office of being a, a public defender. If you ask me what uh, Derwin was thinking or uh, Danny, maybe I could guess what uh, what they're thinking. But as far as what uh, Leon Canozero and his team over there, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, but there has been uh, studies. Well, I mean,
0: do their behaviors suggest that they do something like that? Well, I'm not. I mean, well, he's, you were he
2: he's on the other side. He can't answer that. Like that's that's the point he's making is that like given both previous job and current job like he can't comment okay, on it, what okay, Diaz is so saying. My but what, bad, I, what, bad, I, what bad, do I will bad, say though bad, is I, I get the I, get, I missed I missed that. I but I know, but, I, but yeah. I get the point that you're saying. Well, no, we're just, right. We're right. just no, saying no. it. Like, but um, I get the point that what you're trying to say, and I think that like it is like <laughs> it it does make you wonder, right? Because like I'm thinking about like let's say you are, you know, let's make sense. Right. Like let's say that like you're, you know. A younger person, right, or whatever, whatever, insert whatever age, the cops think you did something, can't really prove it, right, and so they bring you in on whatever, they they, they catch you on something else, they catch you with a joint, let's say they catch you with a joint, bring you in, right, no charges, you're in jail for 45 days, you're like, oh my goodness. I'm in jail. I don't want to be in jail. This is awful. Well, I'm, and well, then
0: just to, just to apology. You're you. in the justice. You're in the yeah. justice system. Is it, what's it called? The, the what's it called? The peace center. Wait, what is the OPP renamed now? Is I the, actually don't remember. I think yeah, it's the justice center. It's you're in the justice center, so you're not in prison. OJC. You're in the ju- oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. You're. you're well,
1: just to to preface uh, on marijuana, you're not going to stay there for 45 days. It's unconstitutional for a person to be okay. held in jail pre-trial longer than what their sins will be. And marijuana has been decreased so much that unless you're looking at like a very elevated. Marijuana charge, you're most likely not going going to stay that long. Uh, but there have been studies that have looked at uh, a person's likelihood to uh, plead guilty, and uh, the ability to pay bail and bond uh, affects that. People who are able to pay their bail and bond are less likely to uh, plead guilty mm-hmm. uh, to a charge. Because if you're if you're in jail, and what occurs is that when you're arrested. Uh, you're sitting in jail I don't know about your household but I know my household cannot work off of uh, either my wife or I not being at work for 45 days yeah I mean we're gonna lose a house we're gonna lose a car and we may lose two cats but we're putting this type of uh, issue on other people and not that we're putting it on it but when you look at what's happening with other people if they're unable to afford their bail and their bond and they're staying in jail for this period of time they are less they're more likely to uh, quickly accept the charge uh, to try to try to move on with their life and not to say that that's, the, that's what the court's trying to do or the district attorney's trying to do, but it is a fact that if you're in jail, and we've seen this in uh, multiple like 60-minute uh, interviews and other uh, 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 documents, uh, documentaries of the, of the sort, is that if you're keeping a person in jail and they have a family, they have ties to the community, they have other things going on, they're more likely to go ahead and take that, take that deal that most normal people who are out would not take.
0: If you're tuning in, you are listening to 22.3 WHIV. This is Resistance Radio. Mark Calendary with me is Kenny Francis. We have uh, today uh, the special counsel uh, to the Louisiana Supreme Court, uh, and that is Mr. Uh, Ken Barnes. We are proudly streaming live on 1230 AM WBOK. If you are listening on WBOK, welcome to WHIV.
2: Um and thanks thanks for that that clarification of the point that Mark Allen are trying to get to. And I think that's just like yet another way, right? Where, like you said, the system, like the DA and the judge may not be intentionally saying, like, let me make this as hard as possible for people who are low income. To be able to like decide how they want to like proceed with their trial or not, but that's like that's the way that
1: it plays out, and that's yes. the way that hey, it affects people. Can I give you my my understanding of how their process goes? Is whenever whenever an individual is a, uh, arrested, uh, first thing that's going to happen is the person's going to come to court. The judge is going to determine if there's probable cause. If there's probable cause, then the next thing the judge, well, if there's no probable cause, the person is released on those charges. Uh, if probable cause is found, then what the judge is going to do is they're supposed to take in consideration with the Louisiana uh, Criminal Code along with the charges that are before and the bond setting factors to determine what type of bond should be set. And there's different factors such as ties to the community, your past criminal history, uh, and whatever else the judge may find relevant. Can
2: we talk about this whole ties to community thing? Because this is is one that comes to mind specifically is you think about Ronald Gasser. Um, If you don't know who Ronald Gasser is, Ronald Gasser was a – I think he lived in Marrero. I actually don't even think he lived in New Orleans. Um, but he was a, a local resident who was recently actually convicted of killing um, former football player Joe McKnight mm-hmm. in, a, um, in, a, inc- road, in like a in a traffic in a road, road rage incident. Where essentially it was, essentially like in, it was in they, camera, got, they got it? into it in the ro- on the road, and then he they basically like over. followed the guy. They pulled over. They kept arguing. And then he shot him from his car, and then claimed self defense, which right. was proved, ground. which was later proved wrong. And he's currently being sentenced to prison but part of the uproar is like this man killed someone and said he did it in broad daylight and he was released on his own recognizance and they were talking and and the remember, and i remember the um the the verbiage at the time was what we hear time and time again when we hear when we see these people which let's be frank about what we're talking about we're talking about like white people with money when they get arrested for things the the, the story becomes this person has quote unquote ties to the community they're important to their to their family and their community this person's had this business for 30 years they're not going anywhere they're an upstanding citizen you can release them and then they'll come back for their trial date
0: Right, and let me give you another example but was, if that was
2: joe mcknight that had done that right no
0: chance what about um who's the knuckle dragger that uh, killed uh, trayvon martin it was the uh, same zimmerman. thing zimmerman right yeah. zimmerman they i mean killed i mean shot trayvon martin and and you know uh and they didn't arrest him for a couple days and he completely walked free so can we
2: can we talk about what this whole like what um what
1: ties to the community is and like what that like sort of standard that gets set is well ties to the community is one of those legal standards that is very amorphous like you know uh good faith i mean what does good faith mean it's,
0: it's not. I'm still having. I can't. I still can't figure it out. So please tell me. <laughs> I mean, what, what's
1: probable calls? And I, I'm telling you, when I say probable calls is fifty plus one, you're probably gonna get like fifty emails from people saying that's not right. This is the way I would define it. So t- ties to the community is one of those other phrases. Is the same. When you say ties to the community. It's like, what community are you talking about? Are you talking about Orleans Parish or are you talking about the city of New Orleans? Uh, because one person will say, well, ties to the community. It's like, what, what do you do inside New Orleans? One person will say, well, I mean, you live in the east. That don't count. Mm-hmm. So ties to the community uh, can mean a couple different things. And different ties could be, do you have family here? Do you own property here? Uh, do you have a business here? How long have you lived here? What type of work do you do here? What, what do you do in the community here that will kind of give us um, uh, assurance that you won't run off and leave the community here? And so the way that this was done previously, before mm-hmm. this
2: this this um this sort of like guideline that y'all are talking about, is essentially the judge would decide based upon what the the prosecutor and what if there's a defense lawyer ready, because you could not have a defense lawyer at this point, right?
1: Well, what occurred? This is true. Uh, so in in Louisiana, uh, in most places, a lot of places, whenever a person is uh, first arrested, uh, what occurs is they're taken to. Uh, jail and then they're brought to court or they have some type of teleconference with the judge and uh, the judge will read the police report or the uh, warrant and will determine hey well based on these facts this is what the bond should be said
0: let's just use big air quotes around a police report and the word facts (laughs) yeah okay
1: well and and inside the police report what it is is that uh these these officers are, are writing uh the facts as they uh perceive them and they're presented to the judge, and the judge are accepting these facts that were written by the officer as if they were true. Uh, And the the judge judge isn't necessarily- First mistake.
0: (laughs) <laughs> the, hold on, let me go just ahead, let me sorry, just Trent, say, Ken, ahead. Ken, Ken, let me just say this. The opinions that are expressed here <laughs> on WHIV belong to Kenny Francis and Mark Allendary alone. They are not reflective of the board members of WHIV, and they not reflect NOSIDA.
1: Now, y'all, y'all keep playing. Y'all going to have to adopt me and my cat. <laughs> <laughs> and...
2: To I'm, be clear, we are obviously very biased, and Ken is trying to do an unbiased the, explanation. The name
0: but, uh, of this radio program is Resistance Radio. So, uh, <laughs> which right.
2: I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you. So they, so the, the judge gets this like statement of "quote unquote" facts from the mm-hmm.
1: officers, and it's going to be contained inside what's called a gist, or it's going to be uh, contained inside of a warrant. Now, if it's on a warrant, the judge already has probable cause. That's determined. If it's inside the gist, the judge or magistrate or commissioner sitting at that moment is going to make a decision about uh, if there's probable cause or not. In a lot of other parishes and uh, a lot of other places across the United States, you may not have a dist- you may not have a district attorney or a public defender there. It may just be the judge reading these facts and then making a decision. In some other places, they may just get a phone call about it and may make a, a, a bond setting over the phone without even seeing the person or anything else. And how is that fair? Well, I like, mean, how is that how it, is that allowed? Well, and. Not to go into that because there's some litigation surrounding surrounding that because that deals with bond schedules. Yeah. Uh, but um, not to get into that, but in Orleans Parish, in my experience, what occur, has occurred uh, when I was a bond advocate and I would represent my clients at first appearances, uh, the judge would allow the district attorney to present the facts, the public defender to present the facts. And while I was there, we were using a tool uh, that was brought in by the Vera Institute for Justice uh, because Vera Institute for Justice formerly ran the uh, pretrial program uh, here in Orleans Parish. So we were able to give these different facts and then present this to the judge. And by being a public defender in Orleans Parish, I was able to meet with my clients uh, roughly right before court. So let's say court starts at 10 o'clock. The judge would come in there and appoint us. I would be able to meet with my my clients from 10 o'clock about eleven o'clock to uh, you an hour to meet with all of them uh and I would it will range from somewhere about fifteen to 30 in the morning uh 30 clients in the morning Jesus.
2: so you get an oh, hour to talk to 15 to 30 people and decide legal advice for them well yeah <laughs> okay uh, so uh
1: and no comment on that but uh right. I found that uh in working with that I was able to learn a lot that helped me bring this over to the other side to working for Louisiana Supreme Court. Now, just to give you some uh, background on uh, the pretrial program that we formerly had, it uh, was a program that was uh, guided by the very Institute for Justice here in New Orleans. Uh, and this came about because right uh, at the time of Katrina, we had about 4,000 people in jail uh, pretrial who, who were there. So um, the city of New Orleans uh, entered into the uh, safety and justice challenge and they wanted to reduce their uh jail population. Well with the uh the reduction of population due to, due to Katrina, uh people moving and also with some of the different stuff that we're taking with the safety and justice challenge, we've been able to reduce the jail population to about 1200 uh so far from 4000 4000
0: so that's a positive thing or is it's that a positive but okay. we're,
1: we still have work to do because what we're still finding is that we have a lot of uh people who are there uh who are there purely because they can't afford their bail or their bond or something of that sort uh so we're, we're working on that so uh we what occurred is that once a person will be brought to court the judge will make a decision on what type of bill or bond would be uh that what type of bill that person would have to pay, uh, pay. Uh, well we uh the city enters into the safety uh justice challenge and the criminal district court uh comes up with the idea that they're able to to handle the pre-trial program and that they ask that the louisiana supreme court uh come in and act as the arbiter between the two uh the city and the criminal district court uh, just to assist in making sure the best practices are being uh being met
0: is that because there is a difference in how that should be done i mean it's just basically looking at two different parties who with different priorities basically the city would like to try to decrease the number of people that are in pre-trial prison, whereas the district attorney's office is going to be more leaning toward trying to keep as many people incarcerated so they can get pleas, essentially? well, uh, That's my opinion, and of course, I phrased it, (laughs) and I phrased it in a biased way, so please answer as you feel appropriate.
1: Oh, yes. Uh, Well, what occurs is with the district attorneys, uh, they're not involved in the pretrial program as far as the the pretrial service program. It's the district court. Uh, So it's the judges that are more involved. So uh, what occurs is that to run the pretrial program, uh, it costs money for the staff to, to be there. So my job is just to make sure that the best practices are being used, that we are mm-hmm. using least restrictive methods whenever we're setting our bail and bonds and we're given conditions, but also making sure that the funding necessary to run such a program is being uh, processed down. So my job is to act as the intermediary there and also to, to see what other things we can to, can do to, uh, to make it work better. And one of those things was to uh, switch from the previous tool that we had uh, to the new tool, uh, which is Laura and John Arnold. Uh, public safety assessment tool. Now, the difference between this one and the old one is the old tool uh, used to ask questions and it allowed for a lot of interpretation. Uh, this new tool does not do. Does can not. Can you have give a, us an example of like what kind of questions would it ask? Uh, so some of the questions it would ask would be, and these didn't factor into the score that was given. So when you use these tools, scores are created. And uh, I I like to go ahead and uh, address some of the criticism that can be had for risk assessment tools because I think there is a fair place for uh, criticism, and we should be uh, weary of all things that we allow into our criminal justice system. <laughs> uh, but. Uh, I think there. Uh, I think once we discuss and we look at it, there are uh, some bright points to it. So the uh, some of the questions that would be asked would be something of the sort would be like, "What's your educational level? Uh, where do you live? Uh, how much do you make a year?" And this do you is, have
0: good faith uh, in the
1: community? <laughs> <laughs> so you know these questions seem very innocuous, good but for the ties. Uh, you, you, you seem innocuous. Ties, Thank you. <laughs> and Mr. Francis has a great tie. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's funny. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> so Not as nice as yours, I'll have you say. <laughs> but please continue. You. So uh, it,
1: these questions seem innocuous, but what it is is that uh, when you ask these type of questions, uh, they can be used to d- make an uh, agency determination, which is very important when determining if an attorney should be appointed or what type of bond level or bail amount should be, uh, be placed on a person. Um, but those type of questions can lead to... Other people interpret them differently and can cause a disparate impact so we decided as an implementation team in the launch of this public safety assessment that we would no longer have an interview and what we had was implementation team that involved the district attorney the public defender the Orleans criminal district court Louisiana Supreme Court uh, the city of New Orleans community leaders and others and in doing that we sat down and we decided well what crimes do we want to consider be crimes of violence Uh, what do we want to be the different levels of risk Uh, because instead of having a risk level of 1 through 12 now we have risk levels of 1 through 5 1 being the lowest 5 being the highest and we have corresponding um, supervision that we decided as a group uh, should correspond with that one being no supervision so a level 1 will be uh, a person that we, we see a very low risk of failing to appear or to commit a new criminal activity so that person doesn't really need supervision on the other hand, level five would be somebody that due to their criminal history and other facts uh, that they uh, pose a, a significant higher rate. But uh, even in that higher rate and looking at other states who have done it uh, for a period of time using the public safety assessment, people who have a risk level five are still at a fifty 50 percent chance of showing up to court. Or not commit a new criminal activity. You're talking about the most hardened people are still not going to commit a new criminal activity while out on bond, and they're still going to show up to court uh, more uh, more times than not.
2: I just clarifying question. So the possible outcomes, because mm-hmm. all that made a lot of sense. You did a great job explaining it. But the possible outcomes of this pretrial hearing is case dismissed. Y'all don't have mm-hmm. y'all don't have anything on this person, mm-hmm. right? That's one. Mm-hmm. Another possible outcome is this person is going to be released till their court date but I'm not going to charge you any money right Mm now. Um, Another possible outcome is this person's going to be released to their court date and your amount is blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. That could be a low number. That could be a high number. Mm -hmm. And then the other possible outcome is you're super dangerous. Mm -hmm. No bond at all.
1: You're in jail until your court date. Those are the possible outcomes? Those are the possible outcomes. Now, the last one you gave is uh, not being released at all. uh, That's a... You, you, you a rare one. Yeah, that's a rare one. Uh, I, I will say because, uh, in even for murder, well, suspected murder. Well, (laughs) uh, well, yeah, because what it is is that you're most likely going to have a bond set. You have to, uh, in Supreme court cases, such as Salerno, uh, it's stated that, uh, release is the norm and detention is the uh, exception. So to say that we're going to keep a person in jail without setting a bail. It's a high burden you can approve. Also, okay. our constitutional amendments uh, state that you know you you you're you're given the right to bail uh, of a reasonable amount. So you're. We have so many uh, safeguards against just putting a person in jail. You have to do a lot to prove that. So usually uh, that doesn't happen. And to do that, the district attorney has to uh, not just show up and uh, give the facts of the case. They have to show up and actually file a document uh, requesting that that person be kept or make a statement uh, or uh, depending on how how that judge accepts those. types. And so that's why
2: even for like
1: capital cases, like mm -hmm. murder cases, you see rather than people trying to get the
2: no bond, you get the like, oh, charge them a million dollars.
0: Well, yeah.
1: And that's and that's one reason why we uh, that's one 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 reason why I think a risk assessment tool is something that's very beneficial, because there's a good example. If uh, if if Kenny, if you went and stole uh, a computer, right, uh, let's say it's a nice computer, it's a Mac, so it's a felony level. And the judge says, well, you
0: have this because a PC is like (laughs) a piece of that'd be a misdemeanor, right?
1: (laughs) A slap on the wrist. We're going to give you a citation. Uh, Well, you still a Mac because those are expensive. You still a uh, Mac that's over a thousand dollars. And the judge says you have felony theft. We're going to set a bond on you. uh, That's commensurate with the fact that you have felony theft. So we're going to set a bond on you for five thousand dollars. Right. And you let's say you work at IHOP you may not have $5,000 to put down. So your only other thing that you can do is either get your family member, your community, or a GoFundMe. Well, you wouldn't be able to do that because you're in jail, you don't have a computer. Uh, or you can have- uh, They only have PCs in jail. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or what you can do is you uh, can have your family go to a bail bondsman. And a bail bondsman uh, can take care of that for you. But if you can't pay for that, then you're gonna be stuck. But in just one quick second, uh, let's say, uh, on the other hand, um, the second version of you, Kenny Number Two, commits murder, and he has a million dollar bond. But he plays in the NFL, uh, and let's say he he likes to kill people on the weekends, and he can pay this million dollar bond. Right after the game, he kills somebody, and that's what he does every week. Well, if, if you're, what is the community more safe by keeping the five thousand dollar person in jail or releasing this murderer uh, who can pay this? But on the flip side, what happens is you have a lot of uh, individuals who may be in some type of organization. Uh, that's uh, geared towards violence and uh, crime. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like like that
0: that. U.S. politicians. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so what 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 occurs is that if these people are in these type of uh, criminal enterprises, if they commit some type of uh, grand crime, they can go back to their group, get the money, and, and be released. So, I mean, is the community being protected by charging higher bonds? I would say no. Because paying money does not stop a person from committing another crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, money as bail has not been shown to prevent crime uh nor has it been shown to get people to come back to court. So if you pay a bail bondsman, it doesn't show that you that 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 you are willingly going to come back to court more than if you paid it yourself. Uh now so, to, there's some argument about a bail bondsman trying to bring you in, but I, no. So to put like what
2: you just said in like really simple like layman's terms, essentially the idea technically was supposed to be that you pay this fee that because you owe this money that you won't get back if you don't show up, it incentivizes you to come to court. But what we've actually seen is that it does a couple things. The high the high payments for folks that are deemed dangerous or whatever word you want to use doesn't actually stop these people from not coming back to court if they don't want to or committing another crime. Because if you if you committed a murder and you have a million dollars to just throw down on bail, mm-hmm you're not you're not caring about much anyway like you, you don't you have a lot of rules in your life mm-hmm. a lot of things stopping you or if you're like just like an independently wealthy person just in general mm-hmm. that's accused of some other crime mm-hmm. you can just pay it and basically not really deal with it until you're law- and get your army of lawyers on it and mm-hmm. if you're a person that doesn't have a lot of money and you get put even sort of like a medium term amount of money you could be trapped in the juvenile in the yeah, justice the system mm-hmm. for a while simply because you don't have the funds mm-hmm. or can't scrunch up the funds to pay it, and then to make matters worse, there's this whole bail bondsman thing, which like I I know that that's something that people talk about a lot. Where the way the bail bondsman work is like, let's say you're the bail bondsman, I come to you and say, hey, I don't have five grand, and you say, okay, I can bail you out for five grand, but now you owe, but now I'm gonna charge you a ten to twelve percent fee mm-hmm. on top of what you owed, and I now have this debt for you. And if you don't show up for your court date, which makes me lose my money, I'm coming after you. Mm-hmm. And that, and we've seen, and and there's been dozens and dozens of articles about like what about a lot of the shady business that bills bondsmen um, engage in, particularly in Orleans Parish, and how it contributes to a continuation of, of mass incarceration. Um, and so it's a system that's sort of like you said, it's not doing what it, it's not doing what it's even like designed to do. It's not keeping the quote unquote dangerous people. Off the streets, or coming to their but court, date and it's, it's just like criminalizing.
0: I don't think it's designed to do that. I think
2: no. I'm just saying it, it doesn't yes, anyway yeah, have yeah, the no, 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 Of course, I understand what you're saying. Right. supposed to have. Right. It doesn't incentivize anybody to come back to court.
0: Right. So what can we do uh, about? I mean, if you're tuning in, you're listening to 102.3 WHIV. This is Resistance Radio. I'm Mark Allendary, Kenny Francis with us today is uh, Ken Barnes, who is the special counsel for Louisiana State Supreme Court. And if you are uh, tuning in, uh, we are streaming proudly on WBOK. Thank you for uh, tuning in to WHIV.
2: I do want to give like one example for folks to give them a concrete thing of what Ken's talking about here. Is, um, I'm not going to use any names, but there is a rather famous um, court case that completed a couple of years ago of a group of individuals in this city that were... Um, That had an organized criminal entity that they were running together and one of them was arrested on a rather serious charge. He happened to be the leader and what had a million dollar bail and what was later found out is said organization paid that bail and then he went out and then got rid of the people that were of led to him being put in incarcerated permanently.
0: So potential witnesses.
2: Yes. And then, and and like, and this, this I mean, I think most people could put it together, like, who's like a really, really famous, like, person that was incarcerated for a very long time in New Orleans in the last couple of years? There was a whole family of them to give people other hints. Anyway. Um, anyway. Yes. Um, and so like that, and that's sort of like what he's talking about is like that million dollar bill didn't stop that next crime from being committed right, right, right. and that $5,000 that for someone on a lesser charge, isn't going right. to either like make them come to court or not come to court. What it does lead to, it leads to people who are already dealing with a criminal charge being put in even more desperate. Say tr- Like let's say you, if you go to, if you're getting picked up, because you stole something because you didn't have it and all the reasons that crime happens, and now you have this other bill that you can't pay probably to a as bondsman,
0: what do you think's gonna there happen? We go, that, right? And that leads to the structural racism, yeah. and then it also leads to bail bondsmen yeah. being probably a very lucrative business. Uh, and also probably being a very uh, prominent lobby as well So they can keep the system the same as it is. So what is being done? I mean certainly the the I mean, I know you're not here talking on behalf of the Supreme Court and you're here representing your own opinions, but oh, can, no, I'm seeking, I'm no, he's
2: on. actually here.
0: Representing oh, Supreme Oh, you are here. Okay. Yeah. We, I mean, can, what can we do to change the system? I mean that certainly other people see it right yeah. Can't we just
1: we do we do w- and you know, we we definitely want, uh, we want more more equitable justice, and uh, yes, that's the reason we want more
0: w- equitable justice exactly.
1: And what and that's why the tool is uh, s- such a great tool. So, the tool is a tool created by Laura and John Ona Foundation, uh, which uh, are a, a couple who have a lot more money than I do, who sat around and said, What do we want to do with our money? Let's fix the criminal justice system. So, what they did was they commissioned uh, some. Uh, scientists to review some cases and find out what are the factors that really determine if a person's going to fail to appear or commit new criminal activity while out on violence. So they
0: did some basic science. Yeah, they they, they
1: science the thing. Right. Uh, So they took 1.5 million cases. They looked through those cases and distilled down to 750,000 cases. And in doing that, they took 750,000 cases from uh, 38 jurisdictions across the United States, including the federal system. And in doing that, they determined that there were nine factors that played into the likelihood of a person uh, failing to appear or committing a new criminal activity. And those factors being, does this person have past figures to appear? Uh, do you have a pending charge at the time of their uh, current arrest? Is this a violent crime? Uh, is it, uh, have, they had violent, have they been convicted on misdemeanors before, felonies before? Uh, have they had a violent conviction before? Uh, and have they ever been sentenced to jail? And with so hold on, let's just stop real quick. Mm-hmm. So
0: all of the examples that you gave was people that seems like they've been touched by the system mm-hmm. several times yes. before, which goes back to what we were talking about earlier with Reynard uh, on Health Human right about the pay ordinance, about mm-hmm. the police alternative youth ordinances. So... If there is a way for us to be able to decrease the likelihood of people touching the criminal justice system, mm-hmm. there is a significant opportunity for people to. Uh, th- this decreases the likelihood of them not, uh, or of them, <clears throat> not bailing out. Pun intended. Uh, of their uh, of returning to court.
1: Yes, and that's correct. And, you know, there the fact that we're pulling from that information and to, to really uh, hit the criticism on his head, uh, and this was something that Kenny and I discussed earlier, was uh, that when I present these facts, when I do a presentation on this, I bring up the fact that this is uh, both is neither. Racial uh, discriminatory and gender, uh, nor gender discriminatory. And the reason for that is because it doesn't use just arrest uh, history, nor does it do where do you live, where you don't have the zip code effect, you don't have the how much money do you make or what type of occupation or uh, some type of legacy issue. Uh, but what it does take into consideration is your criminal history, uh, which, you know, can lend to some type of biases just based on, uh, whoever's got that in the first place. Yeah. Who's inputting the information and not being, not the people who are inputting for the pretrial service, but the actual officers or, uh, the DAs or the public defenders or the, the, uh, the judges. So that, that can cause, uh, an issue there. But that's why this tool is not used in a way where we're asking the judges just to follow it uh 100 percent we ask our just to use judges to use discretion when it's proper because uh there may be an instance where you may have a person who may have had a very lengthy criminal history in the eighties and this 2018 now. And this person well, has they were 17, right. And this person hasn't done anything for 30 to 40 years, but you know, they got caught up in the car with someone and now they're arrested and their risk score may be very high, but you know, they've led a very good life since then. So those facts They have be, ties to the community. They have ties <laughs> to the community. Uh, so that person sh- uh, should be able to, uh, you know, be afforded some type of low bail. But on the flip side, uh, I'm pretty sure the person who, uh, who, Everyone that commits murder doesn't have a lengthy criminal history So if murder is your first crime and you're there you may have a lower risk score But the judge is asked to use their discretion to take that in consideration to say all right Well, this is an elevated crime. So maybe uh, some type of elevated condition should be afforded for this crime
0: Can you tell us who the Louisiana Supreme Court are I actually I know all of the justices in the US Supreme Court I know none of them in the Louisiana State Supreme Court all right. So How many judges do we have?
1: Uh, you, justices. So you, justices. If, if I forget anything, I'm going to ask that. Uh, I'm going to ask for whoever listens to this at the court not to fire me for not knowing all of them. <laughs> this uh, is
0: this is me totally totally asking. I'm going to save you because oh, I was no, able to look no, it, no, it up really me, quick. Let me uh, let me. Uh, be, let me okay. So
1: we have my uh, my boss, uh, who is Chief Justice uh, Burnett Joshua Johnson. She is the first black Chief Justice of Louisiana Supreme Court. Uh, she's also a graduate of LSU Law, uh, where I graduated from. You also- Who, by the
2: way, had to deal with during her swearing in walking past the statue of um, Edward Douglas White, that white supremacist that stands outside the Louisiana Supreme Court, mm-hmm. which is absurd. It's absurd that the first black chief justice in Louisiana had to deal with that. I just I just had to throw that in there. Yeah, so you
1: also have Justice He has Guidry. white in his last name. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's not
0: funny. <laughs> you laughed. <laughs> you, you have Justice Gidry. <laughs> you have Justice
1: Crichton. Uh, you have also Justice Weimer, uh, Clark Genovese, or G- Genevis as people pronounce it differently. And you have uh, Justice Hughes. Oh, yeah, Justice Jeff Hughes from Baton Rouge, Louisiana.
0: So there's seven justices?
1: There is. Uh, there's only one minority justice, though. Um, what one, does one that minute. mean? Uh, only, oh, only one, one. One gender.
0: W- yeah. Got it. Mm hmm. So, otherwise, I mean, are you saying there's just white men then otherwise? Well, so, not,
1: so, not to get into that, but I'm just saying that yes, so we have it's, a very. It's, homo- a one, it's one black woman and six white dudes. Okay. And yes. the reason why I bring that up is because we have a very homogenous uh, court. Uh, but even with that. But it
0: doesn't seem to reflect. Yes, it is homogenous, but it doesn't reflect the population of Louisiana, right? Yeah, but I
1: will say that even that, even that we have a majority uh, white male uh, uh, Supreme Court justice set. Uh, i presented these facts. I've talked about how this reduces jail population. This provides for uh, people in the community not to lose their house and be able to be there for their family. And they, all the justices in the room, got it and they were on board with it. Yeah. So uh, and I, I bring up the fact because you know we read off the names, people are going to make those assumptions where they where they may. But I just want to point out that even with that, we still have the support of the justices. Yeah.
2: Um. So as we start to like run out of time here, I do want to wrap up a couple. Of things. First of all, thank you for coming on, Ken, and mm-hmm. explaining so that explaining to us what is very complicated things. And I think that like my takeaway from this is that one, you know, th- this new tool is a good thing as in it's a step forward away from like the highly subjective, mm-hmm. you know, you're this poor black kid with a drug charge, go mm-hmm. to jail for, you know, and here's your huge your high bail count versus like you're a white businessman who does something similar and you're ties to community and you're fine. Um so I think we've come I think this shows that we've like come th- such a long way from there Mm -hmm. but to the point that mark allen was trying to make is that we still have so much work to be done Mm -hmm. because there is no tool you can create Mm -mm. that controls for all the other inequities in the system right like if everything from your the cops approaching you to the point where you step in front of the judge for this pre-chart hearing has been um stacked in a way that you ended up there in the first place Mm -hmm. No tool is gonna save you from that, nope. even if you do get a judge that like, understands the rest of that. Um, and I think that something that I wanna recommend to folks before I give Ken the last word here is something that has sort of lined up nicely in the way that we've done these episodes is I would recommend folks who are interested in hearing sort of like a complete conversation about this to listen to first the episode we did with Aaron Clark Rizzio, which was back at the beginning of September from um, LCCR to talk about the pay ordinance and juvenile justice. Then listen to this episode with Ken about pretrial hearings and bonds. And then listen to one of the episodes we've done with JP Morrell about unanimous Mysteries. And it, I think it gives you a very nice Um, from start to finish, look at just how stacked our justice system continues to be. Um, And I'll give Ken the last word.
1: And just in closing, I'd like to say that this tool that we launched in Orleans Parish is not a silver bullet. It's not going to be the thing that fixes all our uh, criminal justice inequities, but uh, it is a step in the right direction. Uh, I just will ask the people who can hear this in the community to give it a chance, Uh, come out to the the community meetings we'll be having in the future uh, to learn more about it, Uh, but just to keep an open mind to it and just uh, realize that, uh, we're dealing with human lives every day when we talk about our criminal justice system. Ken Barnes, um, special counsel to Louisiana Supreme Court. Thanks for your time. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, coming up next is Mark Parody, at Mega Music Monday. Ken, thank you so much. Uh, we're leaving on uh, Sweet uh, Street Sweeper Social Club. Mama said, "Knock you out." Bye bye.